there's a saying that it takes a village to raise a child. Um, I've always thought it takes a village to abuse a child as well, sadly. And the abuser will often not only groom and manipulate the child, they'll groom their colleagues. So a teacher is an example, they'll groom their colleagues. They'll groom and manipulate the child's parents. And they will groom and manipulate those other people in the local community because you are a person of, of good public standing. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy and this is the Locked Up Living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, 6 o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. Today you're going to hear about the work of Dino Nocivelli. Dino is a lawyer specialising in child sexual abuse claims with Lee Day solicitors. He has a huge wealth of experience from taking action in cases involving abuse in football and other sports within religious organisations, especially the Roman Catholic Church and Church of England, sexual abuse in the scouts, in the military and by others in positions of authority. Dino's provided evidence to the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse and is highly sought after for expert commentary in the media. So we're very lucky to have the chance to talk with him today. Welcome, Dino. Thanks for coming along. Thanks, Naomi. Thanks for having me. Hi, Dino. Very nice to meet with you today and thanks a lot for coming along. Can we, can we perhaps begin by you telling us um, about your career pathway and uh, did you always want to specialise in your particular field? Uh, thanks for having me as well, David. So, yeah, it's, it's quite an interesting one, I suppose, in that I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer from a very young age. I come from a working class background. I always knew I wanted to use the law for, for change and for good. Um, and it's not meant to be poetic, but it's just generally seeing where you know wrongs have been done and, and changes can be made. I entered the law actually as a um, a corporate lawyer to start off with because I was able to speak Italian and French and other languages, and it just didn't um, satisfy me in, in that way. It just didn't tick the boxes which I needed for my life and didn't give me the right purpose. It's not judging anyone who does that. It's a good um, area of work and so on. So now I did go into litigation. Um, and as soon as this came about, so it was about 2011, 2012, um, I could see that there were challenges in place on a personal level, that there was uh, legal issues which needed to be addressed, and that this issue of you know making sure that there's justice available for all, and this aspect of uh, David and Goliath really intrigued me and that the ability to change the law, whether it's through casework, whether it's through activism, whether it's about raising awareness, was exactly what I wanted to do for the rest of my career. My aim is to make sure that the next generation is a lot safer than we are now, that people are more able to talk and that they're able to talk sooner. So the answer to your question is actually no, I didn't intend to specialise in this area. But once I found it, I found that purpose, then yes, I've grabbed it with both hands. So I can see that, 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 the, that the example of David and Goliath is, is, is a very strong one, isn't it? And identifying with the David you know, character. Mm. Um, but what was it about you know, the particular field of interest that you followed that captivated you? I think that it's the fact that people have been unable to talk for so long and that people have been 
perhaps unwilling to listen and to act. I think those key components are quite unusual. It does create a perfect storm. Um, and it doesn't matter whether it's abuse within a religious setting or schools or the family or sport. Every aspect of society has been affected by abuse. Mm. And again, it's different forms of abuse. You, know, you may look towards sexual, maybe emotional, verbal, physical, or it may actually be neglect. But I think all of those components indicate people who have been harmed and injured. And the fact that the law is trying to grasp this and try to understand it is something which intrigues me. And I think it's something which we need to do a lot better on. And I think for those who have failed, either those who have abused or you, those people who have turned perhaps a blind eye or concealed on purpose, again, the law isn't really up to speed with all of that. So um, it's a bit like being a detective, I suppose, where you can see an issue, you see a problem and trying to bring account some accountability, um, appreciation of the impact and making sure change happens. All of those components are quite unusual for a lawyer, to be frank. Um, and the law is continually changing and awareness is continually happening. And, you know, you can read a newspaper any day and it is, it is a new, you know, in quotation marks, scandal or awareness being brought in, or even just from a psychological point of view and from therapy, people are appreciating a little bit more that, you know, the, the kind of old mantra that sticks and stones will break your bones, but words won't harm you isn't true. And that mental health can have as long and as debilitating impact as physical health or ill health even i think all of those elements are very moving very interesting um and, and you know we do need a lot more focus on it to be frank yes indeed and it's amazing how that uh old saying six and stones may break my bones you know how how that permeates through the childhood of every one of us mm. I, I i guess so what does your work actually entail so on a basic level, it's um, or initial level perhaps, it's representing uh, clients who have suffered abuse, so victims and survivors of abuse. And again, there's different forms from sexual, physical, emotional, uh, verbal, and, and also neglect. It's bringing um, potential legal cases against institutions such as the Catholic Church, sport clubs and others, and trying to achieve a sense of justice, closure and resolution now that takes different forms. So, so for some clients, they want the abuse to be acknowledged or they may want uh, an institution to be held accountable. Perhaps um, they want an apology. Uh, others want people to appreciate the impact it's had. It's not just I was sexually assaulted on one occasion when I was 10. It's actually I've had long, lifelong impact and I need you to understand that. And, and for a number of uh, clients that they want action. So it's not just this happened to me. We're not talking about, sadly, monsters um, hiding in the dark and, and in corners. We're talking often about systematic failings and lots of clients want that. So often the um, first avenue is using the case. Alongside that, um, we do, I do lots of um, work with MPs and charities and, and the media to raise awareness and to try, and to, try to change the law. The ideal position would be, to be totally frank, that there was no need for someone like myself in 10, 20 years, because it has improved. And similar to doctors and medical professionals who treat and work with cancer patients, you know, we do want to prevent abuse if we possibly can, because um, there is no cure to it, sadly. 
So um, alongside the casework and the activism, yeah, we do lots. I do lots of charity talks again, trying to raise awareness and and trying to um, just put pressure on organisations and and the government really to to improve things for survivors of abuse. Thank you. And some of the organisations that you you mentioned, I mean, you talked about churches, uh, sports clubs. Well, of course, we know that uh, sports teams often have billions of pounds uh, behind them. It must take a lot of courage to take on organisations like that. And presumably you must uh, get a team of uh, colleagues to, to, to back you up. Is that how it works? Yeah, well, it, it's um, a sad state of affairs in some um, respect because for lots of victims and survivors of abuse, it's not just the actual acts or incidents of abuse, but it's also the person who did it to them. This isn't a random stranger. Often it is someone who's in a position of trust, power and authority. And the fear is that they are big. I am small. They have good public standing. I am just a child. And when we talk about the organisations, as you mentioned, they are big. We are small. They are um, known worldwide. They have billions. They have probably teams of lawyers. And, and it is going back to that David and Goliath, and it is scary for the survivors and the clients. So what we do um, try to install is a sense of a collaborative approach, and we want to work with organisations. Um, we want them to understand, and by understanding, we would hope that would bring a quicker and, and fairer resolution for all parties involved, and especially our clients. That's the only way we're going to get them to change. If we shout at them, often they won't listen. But yes, we do have a, a you know, we build a team of lawyers and making sure the support is available for the survivor, whether it's therapeutic support and or legal support. And then, again, looking towards um, the media and other avenues to make sure we can build as strong a case as possible and, and to try to get the, the resolution which these clients deserve. This is very interesting isn't it? because you're, I think, describing a very kind of complex situation where there are both individuals so for each each of your individual client there will be perhaps one or maybe more than one individual that they have very intense feelings about but then quite likely there's a large substantial organization behind them i was just thinking actually goliath actually was only representing his own corporate body in a sense in that particular battle Yes, 100% true. Uh, I think that once um, someone has gone through abuse, the initial focus is obviously on the abuser. But sadly, abusers don't operate in, in, in silos. They do operate in public. And there's a saying that it takes a village to raise a child. Um, I've always thought it takes a village to abuse a child as well, sadly. And the abuser will often not only groom and manipulate the child, they'll groom their colleagues. So a teacher is an example. They'll groom their colleagues. They'll groom... And manipulate the child's parents and they will groom and manipulate those other people in the local community because you are a person of, of good public standing that does add again to that David and Goliath aspect and again you're not just saying that this man did it and predominantly it is males which abuse but not exclusively um, but it, it is looking at the entire system and figuring out not only why do bad people do bad things but why do sometimes good people allow bad things to happen or, or don't act to stop those bad things from happening. Yeah, and on, on, on that 
theme really one of the things you've campaigned for, campaigned for is the mandatory reporting of child abuse and whilst that may seem like common sense it appears that it's quite difficult to achieve and quite contentious why do you think that is um maybe a simple question david unfortunately it is quite a complex answer actually and it shouldn't be so in most of the developed world we do have mandatory reporting in england we do not the question um from you is why why is that um certain organizations think that it may bring forward too many uh, allegations of abuse or concerns about abuse um my view is to actually turn that point on itself it's better to have more uh, allegations of concerns for us to be more aware of this and to act on it rather than not to be and um, sadly sometimes it comes down to money and resources and again this is not a political point but often we look towards um, acting once the deed has been done um, rather than trying to prevent it. And again, we've seen this in the recent white review within gymnastics. We had picked up on, you know, in quotation marks, these low level concerns. We had picked up on in other reports, the Oldham report and elsewhere, Robin reports into these low level concerns or warnings. We could have stopped abuse earlier. We could have prevented others from suffering abuse. There is no reasonable justification for us not to do this. I know it would incur further expense and money, but the alternative is that people suffer abuse. We incur further time in relation to the criminal justice system, therapy, um, lost earnings, people being on benefits, suicide risks. The cost to human life is so high. Uh, it's a lifelong campaign, and I hope I don't spend my entire life to achieve it. But one day we will get mandatory report in England. I'm hoping that the independent inquiry does show this because we've been relying far too long on people's morals to do the right thing. If you're made aware of child abuse, of course you would tell the police. However, it doesn't happen. And we've seen this in sports, in the media, um, in churches and schools for decades because those adults still are worried about calling out their peers or they may be worried about their professional standing or their uh, careers and uh, you know it's not my position to to throw judgment at them but I do think that management reporting would also protect those people they should not consider be considered to be heroes or even whistleblowers they should be doing their duty and as a result you know they need protection that the people in positions of trust and uh, children need protection. We can't rely on children to still act on this. The burden's too much on them. It doesn't work. Um, and as a very wise man, Einstein said, you know, if you do the same thing and expect a different result, I think you said you're an idiot. And, and you know, we're still doing this. So um, it, it needs to change. It needs to change today. But, it, but hopefully when the report comes out by the independent inquiry later this year, it'll be one of their key um, demands or recommendations that this does come into force finally. Thank you. I think one of the arguments, both David and I are also therapists, and I think one of the arguments that I've heard um, advanced is, I think, an anxiety amongst sometimes therapists, uh, practitioners, that possibly it would serve as a barrier to people talking about what's happened to them if they thought they were going to be catapulted into a situation whereby um, there's legal 
proceedings straight away. Is that is that an argument you've come across? So I've heard that point put forward. I have. I, I do disagree with it. Um, just because there are numerous circumstances whereby allegations can be raised and concerns can be raised on an anonymous basis or not. And again, if it was going to be done on an anonymous basis, and again, it, there's numerous examples of that, um, it would still identify potential abusers and action could be taken. I think this concern, um, it, I think it is misplaced. And again, there is mandatory reporting, by the way, for uh, FGM, so female genital mutilation, there is mandatory reporting already in this country for that. So the question is, why can you have it for that type of offence, but not for other types of offence? And I think that the key consideration is, is protection. And again, if you're in a position of trust, if you're in a regulated authority as a teacher or something else, and you are concerned about getting involved, again, the question is, why are you in that profession? What is your key duty? Your key duty is to care for a child. And you are doing your job by doing so, by raising the concerns and acting on them um, and you know, passing on to the relevant authorities. So I, I appreciate it is difficult, but we need to do more. I think it's very interesting to, when you, know, when you think that actually for one particular crime that, that, mm. that does exist and that's, people don't seem to be objecting to that. Do you, do you think the way that institutions manage the aftermath of child sexual abuse could at times be construed as further abuse? Yes, I do, sadly. Um, often it can be an insult to the actual harm and injury caused by the abuse. Um, and instead of putting your hands up and going, yes, you know, mistakes have been made or abuse happened on our watch and... and we didn't know about it or we should have done more about it and we will try to rectify it. Often the shutters come down, the head goes into the sand and all the other, you know, metaphors, analogies, whatever it is. Um, and it compounds the issue, actually. And, and it can really cause a distance to, to just increase between the parties. I understand from an institutional point of view that you may be reluctant to engage, but I actually did a, an article about this recently, about the power of an apology and how it can mend so many issues. Um, using an example of abuse in a church. So let's say you've been abused by a Church of England priest, an example. Your anger, your uh, disappointment, your harm may have been caused by the priest. But if the church then closed down around you, not only do you lose that kind of respect for the church, you also lose your faith, literally, your uh, religious faith. And... and what you should be trying to do is try to, you know, restore that relationship. It is so important. It would alleviate, to some extent, the pain and impact. It would help to you know, the, that individual to move along in the recovery process. Um, it's what should be done. It isn't what's done in, in most cases. Um, there are certain organisations which are changing tact, are trying to be more um, collaborative, what a better phrase. And that does make a huge difference to those people's lives. You can see it in therapy and so on. It, it kind of takes the wind out of the sails of the kind of the pain. Um, so, yes, they can do a lot more. But I think there's a three ways. Either you can help, and like I just said, in a collaborative manner, you can do nothing. But lots of institutions will just shut down, deny, um, you know, resist, and actually just kind of push survivors away, actually, and that's really damaging. 
But also, I think, you know, we know that the difference in one of the things that can make a difference when two people experience a traumatic incident, that it's it's often the response to the traumatic incident that dictates whether the person is left traumatised by it. So, mm. you know, two people experience something very similar, but if somebody's dealt with in a in a manner that's um, acknowledging of their emotional response and the impact it's had on them, that that has the power to really shape and change what happens next for for individuals. But you alluded to um, some institutions are trying to do better, and I wonder, um, it may not be possible, but if if it is, I wondered if it's possible to name those, because I think quite often actually what we get is, is hearing about the institutions that do badly, and it's hard then to see role models of... Um, institutions that are, are are doing things in a better way. Yeah, it, it is kind of quite sporadic, unfortunately. But the organisations which do well are those which kind of fill a couple of key components. Transparency and trust are so important for every survivor. And the fact that you've been abused by someone in a position of trust often means you distrust adults or institutions um, and the like. So putting out um, uh, a public apology may seem good on the face of it, but what you do want is a personal apology. So you want to say, Dino, I know what happened to you. I know who did it, and I apologise to you personally. And for it to be individual, and there's been one organisation which has done that. Um, there's been other organisations which look to do an inquiry. So again, the inquiries have different kind of formats. You do need an independent one. You can't just ask the Catholic Church to mark their own homework doesn't work very well for obvious reasons and you've got to have something which is published you can't just publish a summary which again we've seen in certain um, institutions so that full transparent hands up kind of approach personal apologies so it's a tailored approach to each individual they're not just a number they're not just another survivor it's actually you know a specific case and then acting on it and not just saying we're doing this and, and, and you know well tomorrow we're going to become better it's like no no what are you actually going to do and there you can actually have survivor input sometimes you've seen institutions take a kind of ivory tower approach whereby we know you don't we do need survivor input we need to know what's important we do need therapeutic input legal input and so on to understand actually what can make a real difference i think that um certain organizations are better than others not one of them is perfect so when you ask for a name of an institution they all have different attributes but we haven't got a perfect defendant or institution yet um, but if you can pick up on those key points you know, the transparency the trust the personal acknowledgement and the true devotion to action with survivor input that would be amazing um, and that would truly bring along change for the entire institution again lots of this abuse comes from a systematic point of view or failing if you can get these key components in place we would hopefully eradicate or reduce abuse substantially from low level abuse you know to the most serious forms of abuse as well thank you i think i think it can be really hard to stomach the kind of like repeat it seems that we see the same institutions repeatedly um being raised as having failed to protect people from abuse within their within their service do you think more emphasis upon restorative justice principles within our legal system would prevent some of these recurrences should we be looking for harsh sentences um to make victims feel better 
so I wouldn't agree with the word harsher. What I would say is more proportionate and fairer. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, again, depending if you consider the criminal justice system um, needing to be um, a deterrent, um, to be a punishment or to rehabilitate offenders, you may consider the prison sentence in different ways. And that's why I always say it should be proportionate. So for lots of survivors, the impact on them can be lifelong and, and, and devastating. And um, I do think when we look towards certain um, uh, criminal offences, whether it's viewing child abuse imagery or videos and others, often the sentences aren't proportionate actually to the offence which is being committed. So I think that is important. When we talk about restorative justice, do I believe in it as a concept? Yes. Do I think it can be beneficial? Yes. However, it does need to have those kind of key components. You can only have restorative justice if you understand your failings, if you appreciate the impact on the actual victim survivors, and you generally believe that this is the right thing to do, not because it's good PR, not because it, you know, we're getting slammed in the media, let's just, you know, go along, shake someone's hand and say sorry. Survivors want genuine apologies. And I think this applies to everyone. You know, it applies to burglaries, it applies to stabbings. It's the same point. You see the same points keep on coming up. So again, I believe in the concept, but it needs to have those kind of building blocks in place. And I think by working collaboratively and trying to break down these barriers would be really beneficial for defendants to do. Um, far too often we again see them being very aggressive, very defensive about things. Restorative justice, therefore, is not even an option on the table because it's too far away. You're in different rooms, not even on the same table when we're talking about this issue. Yeah, I think um, having spoken to quite a few people who've been involved in whistleblowing, where actually what they wanted is an apology more than yeah. more than anything. You know, the, a sense of an organisation taking responsibility and holding its holding its hands up, and actually that probably would have kind of like halted some of the anger and some of the perhaps legalistic actions that followed because of the sense that an institution had learned and was genuinely sorry for the for the wrongdoings but when that doesn't happen you can see how people end up eating up with rage over their whole lives you know if you've been a child and abused over many years within an institution that should have been caring for you 100 percent. and i think the example which i would give is that if there's a fire inside your living room, by an institution, they can either put out the fire or try to put it out, or they can pour petrol over it. But what you can't do, you can't pour petrol over it by you know, failings and, and neglect, and then say, no, the house is not on fire, which is what often happens. And the survivor's standing there going, I'm pretty sure it's on fire. I'm the one who's suffering here, and you're just making it worse. And now you're denying it, and now you're covering it up. All of those aspects, make it 10 times worse and then you see the public apologies come out and it's like well what is all of this i'm still stuck inside the bloody house you're not helping me you're not addressing my issues but you're going outside the front door to tell everyone it's all fine no fire happening it, it, it isn't acceptable and that's what we're talking about i think there's two different issues here so one is about the individual so for the survivors and the victims and the other one is for the media and the public and they should marry up together. Unfortunately, depend, regardless of what level of society or what aspect of society you're in, you do see the public perception is very different to the human reality, sadly. Um, but yeah.
Did you want to say something, David? No, I... Oh, sorry, because you'd switched away, well, and I was worried. I, I was just, <laughs> I was thinking of Yorkshire Cricket Club whilst you were talking then, and, and that saga and the way that it dribbled out, and what a painful process it was. Mm. Hmm. We're just yeah. talking about sport. I got in touch with you, Dino, after reading a blog post you'd written about John Yems, the former manager of Crawley Town, um, the football club, and the allegations that he'd racially abused some members of the club. And al although this wasn't about allegations of sexual abuse, you did make some relevant observations about Mr Yems' employment in other clubs that might be relevant. Is, is that something you're able to comment on? Yeah, so obviously there's an ongoing investigation, as far as we understand, by the Football Association into Yems and his allegations. Um, so a couple of the key components is that this man is, is in his 60s, so you don't just, um, you know, the allegations are serious and we need to see what happens in relation to him. What I do have to say is that for lots of allegations, whether it's um, racial abuse within football, cricket, uh, rugby, the most recent example, these things don't operate in, in silos and we can't comment on the EM's case specifically because it's ongoing investigations. But the key questions are is that for people who um, abuse, um, there's often a pattern, there's often people who are made aware. Um, lots of the abuse, um, just generally, racial abuse, sexual abuse and so on, the abuses often when they've been identified are in their 50s or 60s mm. or older. Um, and, and, and there's a pattern there. So it's not just it's happened once and, and no one could have known it. There's obviously a clear pattern. That is something which needs to be looked into. And again, these don't operate in silos. So if there's a systematic abuse, so the EMS example, which I will comment on just on this one point, if EMS is being investigated by the Football Association, they need to do a fair and thorough investigation. He has his right of defence and I appreciate that. The question is, what about the others in the club, the assistant managers, the physios, um, the groundspeople, others who would have been in or around, who would not have aided and abetted, but may have listened to it, may have been able to stop it, if it has happened or not, again, these are all allegations. Again, the Football Association should be looking at the entire system um, for any form of racial abuse. The same as what happened in cricket with Razim Fafik and the Yorkshire Cricket Club they did a full and thorough review into the entire club. So the question which I have, and I don't know who can answer it, but why in cricket do you have a full club review of everyone associated at a club? But in football, we focus on one man, John Yems, um, and his allegations. It, it seems um, a quite a big contrast between the two of them. Again, we'll have to see what happens with these, uh, the FA's investigation. We'll have to see if it's made public. Um, we'll have to see how far it does. And we also have to look into, do they just look at that one club or do they look into all of the previous clubs and see again if there are other concerns. This is a, a really important issue about whether or not we are proactive or reactive to allegations of abuse. Um, and, and often for you know, sports as an example and others, we will focus on that one individual club. So let's say, let's call them Wanderers United, because it's not a real club. We look at Wanderers United and we look at Dave, who abused at Wanderers United. But Dave is a six-year-old man. We have not looked at all of the previous clubs and we have not looked at those people around him because either they felt unable to challenge him or alternatively, they agree with his views and in, that in itself is of a concern. Um, 
but it's, it is quite a big contrast at the moment between cricket and football and this issue about racial abuse. And the issue of racial abuse is something that you've um, that you've certainly written about before. It's something that that you see as an important area that needs addressing. Do you want to say something more about your work in this area? I've always considered abuse to be abuse. Um, no ifs, no buts. And I think that wherever an adult purposely and in, you know, intentionally um, sets out to cause a, a child harm, pain and suffering, that must be considered to be abuse. And um, we appreciate the impact. We're increasingly aware of the impact of bullying and harassment and intimidation and the impact of, of verbal abuse. Sadly, as soon as we come towards the issue of race, that does seem to cloud everything else, actually. When we look at the race first and the abuse second. Um, in my personal experience of, of working on racial abuse cases within football, uh, that's what I've seen frequently, that does need to be addressed. It's been long-standing and long-lasting, the impact. Um, and there's been a, there are a couple of studies ongoing at the current time, actually, by um, psychologists into... Um, the impact of sexual abuse on black survivors and how they may um, not have the same ability to obtain therapy, how there may be additional barriers, as there's numerous barriers for all survivors, but again, what are the additional barriers for black survivors of, of sexual abuse and other forms of abuse, and making sure that for those who suffer racial abuse, that there are uh, therapists available for trauma of this type. Um, it's an area which hasn't in my personal view, being developed as, as much as it perhaps should have been or could have been. Um, it's something which we do need to address urgently, but, but it's a specific issue of, of racial abuse, racial trauma, and, and how black survivors of sexual abuse um, are treated by the criminal justice system, the civil justice system, by the therapeutic. It's something we really do need to do a lot more work into. So do you think we treat um, uh, victims of sexual abuse who come from a, uh, a racialized minority differently to white victims? I don't think we, we, well, the simple question is, I don't know. I think that's the key component. I think when I've spoken to my clients who are black, um, there are additional barriers there in disclosure. Um, often and sometimes it's the ability to um, work with therapists who are like them so lots of my male clients want to work with um, male therapists sometimes they want to work with female therapists it's all about the ability to have choice and the ability to understand um, and a number of them have been through the NHS which you know NHS is a fantastic institution and I fully support it um, however uh, you know the specialist help isn't generally available for abuse survivors and especially if you meet a therapist you don't feel like you can build that bond that rapport which is so important um, it can have a, a detrimental impact on that survivor's engagement in therapy or inclination to continue with therapy um, that's a, a real problem there's also an issue of adultification which means that sometimes we you know not we but certain individuals will treat um, uh, child abuse survivors who are black more akin to an adult than a child 
Um, there's a number of different factors which are in play, but it's something which we haven't really looked into and addressed. And this is something which my, my black clients have said to me um, on numerous occasions. Um, and I think it is something which we do need to look into. So not only the kind of racial abuse, the verbal abuse, but also when we're looking into sexual abuse as well. Thank you. One of the things, Dino, that, that's very striking about you is your, and it comes across very powerfully in this conversation that we're having, is your involvement in activism and your willingness to speak up. Is that something that comes naturally to you? And do you think it links up with your own uh, well-being? Yeah, I've always been quite keen to um, to bring change and to help people in whatever way it is. Um, and if it includes rocking the boat, then, then so be it, to be frank. Um, but lots of my clients want to make sure that we can prevent abuse and to avoid it. It does go like, you know, hand in hand with the work which I do um, as a lawyer. Um, and my kind of main passions, to be frank, in trying to improve matters. So I think those are all in place and it, and it does help to give purpose to what we're doing and why we are doing it, which is really important to me. Thank you. So do you think our criminal justice system is set up in such a way that it can ever effectively deal or prevent with abuse? The criminal justice system in itself is reactive um, and that it only truly steps in once a crime has been committed. Um, in relation to prevention, um, it's a difficult question because um, it probably does need to go hand in hand with um, the NHS and other resources to try to prevent abuse, to try to you know, get hold of abusers before they do commit these crimes, if we possibly can do so. Um, you know, so for example, child abuse imagery, it would be helpful to try to set out a clear point that this is wrong, that, that you, you will be treated the same way as if you had committed these offences, actually. Um, that would be a, a one way of doing it. But I do think the, the criminal justice system in itself it is... Um, reactive rather than being proactive mm. Mm. are there other things you would like to see changed in that respect well obviously mandatory reporting and kind of corporate responsibility it would be something which i'll definitely push for um we've recently recently been able to expand the positions of trust so include sports coaches and religious leaders so those who enter sex relations with a, an athlete for example they're coaching and they have a, a duty of care to who's 16 to 18 that's now a legal an illegal um, offense um, but there's still more work to be done there it doesn't cover ballet teachers dance driving instructors um, wrestling and others so there's more work to be done there um, and i think that there's a number of different kinds of law which we which we do need to bring into force to kind of tighten this area to reduce the loopholes. Um, at the same time, we really want institutions to engage um, with all of this. It shouldn't be us and them. Um, the main focus and the paramount concern should always be the children under their care and the now victims and survivors of abuse. So 
I think anything like that, which would be possible, would be really good to kind of engage further. But I do think, unfortunately, we're going to need a lot more awareness to be drawn to this before we can say, right, you know, now institutions will openly engage um, into everything. I just don't know the criminal justice system, apart from increased punishments and expansion and, and, and closing these loopholes, I think most of this would probably be um, a kind of political points, um, societal changes and, and civil redress as well. I think those are the key kind of tools we can use to kind of reshape social norms and try to um, close the safeguarding holes for, for child abuse. Dina, this is a really tough area of work that you're you're working in. It, it reminds me of when I used to see policemen who were involved with uh, chasing down cases of sexual abuse and had to view lots of videos, and it was very you know, wearing and demanding upon them. Do do lawyers in in this area get support? Do you get supervision? Do you have some kind of reflective? practice to help you process the emotions that must be drawn upon you yeah my family they um are really good in this respect in that um making sure we do reflect and, and consider and pick up on any kind of warning or triggers which are available i think we're all very passionate um, as lawyers in this area, and we remember the reasons why we are doing it, but we're also fully aware of our limitations. And, and often you may want to not overstep, but the fact is we also need to remember, you know, we, we are lawyers, we're not therapists. And sometimes some of our clients are in significant pain and suffering. Um, sometimes, sometimes suicidal, and I've been in occasions previously whereby been at the end of a phone call when someone has been trying to attempt suicide and when we've had to you know intervene um it, it is extremely difficult but as long as we know where we are you know um safe and comfortable and where our clients can be as well it's making sure you have those kind of measures in place and where something does step over that line making sure that again that support network is there for the survivor and also for the lawyers as well to be frank because you can get um, secondary trauma. Um, Clive Sheldon QC, who did the, the Football Association's report, talked about this. Got quite a lot of backlash on, on social media. Again, that's for someone else to pass judgment, but I think the basic point is that he was hearing about um, child abuse, um, and it, it is very um, traumatic to hear about the pain and suffering people have been going through. So you, you do need to have those provisions in place to make sure that you are also okay, because if you're not okay, um, your client's also going to service. It's like the um, the thing on the plane, which you always hear. You know, please put on your own life jacket before you help others. It, that that saying or whatever it is, that that is really important. Actually, when we're talking about abuse and mental health as well. Absolutely. So, apart from those kind of more or less formal structures that you're just referring to, how do you keep yourself emotionally? N nourished and, and, and well when you're doing this work? So I think that my um, you know, I'm really passionate about this area and I think that does help to keep my, my focus on a personal level I, I do lots of kind of um, sports and, and try to keep myself you know, physically well and, and mentally well in that respect um, but it's always just keeping a, a check on things if you can, making sure that balance is okay 
um, with mental health, physical health, work, life, um, clients, family, and so on. I, I think that's a really important thing to do. But whilst also looking at the bigger picture and thinking about actually if something's wrong here, how do we change it? How do we improve things? And again, realising if, if I'm going through this and there's probably someone else going through it and, and making sure that understanding's shared and passed on. I don't think there's, and this is one thing which I probably have learned throughout my, my career to date, is that um, asking for help, acknowledging that you know mental health is an issue for all in different formats, in different times. Sometimes it may even surprise you actually when it affects you. Um, I think that's a really important thing to acknowledge. And again, just, just making sure that you know you are not alone. And I think lots of the work which I do with survivors, those kind of key aspects I've brought back into my own life, um, you know, my own personal life, my family life as well. I, I think those things are really important to kind of share with others. Dino Machiavelli, thank you very much indeed for giving us your time today. Thanks, David. Thanks, Naomi. Thank you, Dina. Cheers, That's a great conversation. Thank you.